want to ask you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation, and we're going to uh, look at chapter 2, and let's stand as we open the Word of God. We'll look at chapters 2 and 3 over the next couple of weeks. And uh, you might say, well, I thought you would take a break from the book of Revelation for Father's Day and preach one of those great Father's Day passages. Well, you see, this part of the book of Revelation, as I began to study and ask God for kind of a fresh way to approach a text, and many of these letters that I've preached on before in in chapters 2 and 3, I believe the Lord has led me to, this Sunday and next Sunday, to look at the values that the church is called to embrace, that believers are called to embrace, and how those values are under fire today. And I can't think of a better place to start with defending these values than with dad. And so I think it would just be appropriate on Father's Day for us to begin this study of chapters 2 and 3 as we look at values under fire. And so I'll read the first few verses, and I've got to remember, and I, I missed being with you last week, I'm glad that uh, Dr. Tony Moon was able to fill the pulpit. I know he brought a fantastic message on that vision of Christ in the second half of Revelation chapter 1, but I've got to remember to remind these fellows that when you open the book, people will stand, and uh, that's been happening ever since, for those of you who are new, ever since I preached out of Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra the scribe opened the book of the law and the people stood, I said, wouldn't it be cool that if every time we open the Bible to read the scriptures, if people just automatically stood up? And so the church started to do that. So if you were wondering, man, why do people stand before he stands them up on a, on a Sunday morning? It's because of Nehemiah chapter 8 and the awesome respect that we learned that we should have for the word of God. And, but I've got to remind preachers that are guests that when they open the book, Folks are going to stand because I think it freaks them out a little bit. They don't know what to do with you sometimes once they get you standing. But I know he brought a a fantastic message on the conclusion of chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses to get a kind of a feel for how these letters were delivered here in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. But we'll just look at the first three verses in chapter 2 to get us uh, started with an understanding of what Jesus was trying to accomplish here. He said, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Father, we do thank you for this word. Thank you for each of these Letters that you saw to record in this great book that would be preserved for us, even here in the 21st century, that have great relevance for today, even this Father's Day. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be our guide and our, and our instructor as we look at this, uh, these two beautiful chapters together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When you're a dad, one thing that you want to instill in the next generation is values. Uh, I've got a son getting ready to take off for college, and when you begin to think about those days, the last thing you want your children to do when they go off to college is to not go off with values that they hold on to. None of us want our our children to go off to college and become those party animals who who get involved in all kinds of immorality and drunkenness. They'll tell you at most... um, Uh, at least most state universities and some Christian colleges, that the freshman year is one of the most wasted years uh, in in all of college. That's why it's a lot easier if you don't get into the college of your choice to maybe transfer in as a sophomore because the dropout rate of the freshman party animals is so big 
And, and so we pray, you know, Lord, just don't let them go off and be that, that, that party-hardy kind of guy that gets into all kinds of trouble and, 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 and gets involved, you know, the, the drug and alcohol and the sex and everything else that takes place. And what's interesting is actor Ray Romano says having little children in the house is kind of like living in a frat house. Any of you have a lot of little children in the home, dads you might identify, but he says, you know, everything you want them to avoid one day when you have small children in the house is kind of like living in a frat house. He says, first of all, you never get much sleep if you have little children in the house. If you have little children in the house, everything's always getting broken. Pastor Ben said, amen. I believe that Ben and Joni have a room at urgent care just for their family. It's kind of cool. Everything's always getting broken. And then if you have little children in the house, there's a lot of throwing up. So it's just like living in a frat house, right? No sleep, everything broken, and, and, and kids are always throwing up. Well, we don't want our, our kids to kind of get into that when they leave home. We want to instill those values that they will take with them throughout life, starting from those toddler years, those most impressionable years, and throughout their lives. And dads can play a role. Now, you say, what does that have to do with Revelation chapters 2 and 3? Well, the, these chapters contain letters to seven churches. And in these letters to the seven churches, many people see all kinds of things because of the apocalyptic nature of this book. But these were letters dictated by the Lord Jesus himself. Some see in the seven churches of Asia Minor that are being addressed here, seven church ages. Indeed, we have often heard in my lifetime, even going back to my childhood, we are living in the days or the age of Laodicea. The Laodicean church, as we'll see, was the lukewarm church. And if there's ever been a, a time in America where the church has been lukewarm, it's certainly today. So many people will say, we're living in the days of Laodicea. Now, the difficulty with that is that not everywhere around the world is the church lukewarm. There are places where the church is owned fire and passionately on fire, even here in the United States, but especially in certain places around the world like South Korea and the underground church in China. Certainly, all seven of these churches existed in the first century. So you can't limit yourself to looking at seven church ages because all seven churches were real churches experiencing real issues trying to hold on to their values there in the first century. And if we take a global view of the church today, we'll see that certainly all seven types of churches exist today. All seven of these types of churches are encountering great persecution in the world today. Our values are being tested today. Dr. Paige Patterson, in his commentary on Revelation, writes of the universal quality of these messages for every generation, he says, first, almost any church, even a contemporary congregation, has more in common with one of these congregations than with the others. For example, in some parts of the world, churches are Smyrna churches. Dr. Patterson says they're suffering almost overwhelming persecution, yet remaining true to their witness to Christ. Other churches, he says, are Philadelphian churches with an open door of missionary effectiveness. Other churches are Ephesian churches, busy with misplaced priorities and thus not functioning out of a pure love for Christ. And then he says other churches are Sardian 
congregations with a reputation for vitality, but largely ineffective in what they do. There are the Permian churches, he says, married to the world, and and with the moral values that they should be embracing becoming non-existence. Then the Thyatiran churches that have delved deeply into heretical doctrines, and then the Laodicean churches that are neither hot or cold anymore, just lukewarm. Like in that day, the church today, and Christian families that make up the church. The church is is a family in and of itself, but it's made up of Christian families. And in that day and in today, we're all struggling to hold on to our values. We're all struggling to hold on to our call to reflect the glory of God and to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world and not compromise and lose those values that are under fire. We're all to be about his kingdom agenda, and not get caught up in the worldly agendas of the day. The temptation for the church in the first century that was under fire when their values were under fire is the same temptation we face today, and that is just compromise, church. Just go along to get along. And dads, we know that on this Father's Day, that that's the temptation that dads are faced with constantly as we try to lead lovingly the families that God has given us is just compromise, just say it's okay, just tolerate certain things and go along to get along in the world. Now, we are going to see in this revelation of Jesus Christ, and I hope you enjoyed Dr. Moon last week as he uh, kind of expounded upon those scriptures of Jesus, the one who holds the keys, the one who's in the midst of the seven churches. We're going to see more visions that Christ give in this revelation of Christ as we get past the, the, the 4th and, and, and on into uh, the months of July and August. But today I want you to see not the visions of Christ, but the values of Christ. The values of Christ that are being revealed to these churches. Now they're being revealed in a couple of ways. And I'm not going to try to cover all of them today or we'd be here till late in the afternoon. But there's a couple of ways that he's revealing these values. Six of the seven churches receive commendations. Receive attaboy, you know, pat on the back, good job, great accolades. Six of the seven, all but Laodicea. There was really nothing good that Jesus had to say about the church at Laodicea. Interestingly, five of the churches receive confrontations. Not only Laodicea, but four other churches So that means that there were churches that received both commendations, things that they were doing right, and confrontations, things that they were doing wrong or things that they were not doing at all. And the commendations and the confrontations reveal what I will call actual and aspirational values. So as we look at maybe these seven churches, rather than dissecting one at a time, we'll look at the big picture in chapters 2 and 3, And today we will focus on those commendations that reveal the actual values. What do we mean by actual versus aspirational? Well, when we say it's an actual value, it's something that the church, at least one of the churches, many times two or three or four of the churches, actually had in place things that they were getting right. And when we say aspirational values, we're talking about those values that the church knew and that Christ had revealed that these are things you should value, 
but they weren't always getting those things right. And so the third value we get to today will also be the first one we start with next week because for some of the churches it was actual, for others it was only aspirational. For some it would be a commendation, for others it was a confrontation. But today we will focus on the commendations, those things that were actual values in some of these churches that Jesus applauded. And dads, if you've embraced these values this morning, we applaud you and say, good job. Don't quit. Don't let go of those values. Stand strong. And the first one summarizes what several of the churches were experiencing here, and that's that Jesus commends diligence in their works. We can refer to that as actions. Jesus commended diligence because they were people of action. They were about the Father's business, doing some things that God had called them and commissioned them to do. We can start with the church at Ephesus that we just read about. He says, to the angel. Now, there's already some controversy here about the interpretation. There's at least five interpretations of what angel refers to. There are two that are more popular than the rest and they're more accepted than the rest. And those two are that the angel was some kind of guardian angel over each of the seven churches. And another interpretation, I think is probably more accurate, and I don't say this just because I'm a pastor, but the word angel simply means messenger. In the Greek, it's angelos, the one who brings a message. And so many interpreters believe that the word angel here, the word messenger here, has to do with the one who would take the scroll and deliver the message. See, uh, an angel was either a heavenly messenger or a messenger with a message from heaven itself. And so I believe here it's referring to those messengers. We get the word evangelism. It's, we take the prefix you, meaning good or beautiful, and angelos, the word for angel. It's euangelion or evangelism, the, the proclaimer of good news. An evangelist is a proclaimer of good news. And so we see that word news or message in this word angel, and it was responsibility of someone to bring the news. And so that, that messenger is addressed in each one of these letters. And he says, the, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and, who, and you saw this picture graphically last Sunday, and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Just a reminder that Jesus Christ himself is right there in the middle of these seven churches. That the, even all the persecution that's going on around them, the world falling apart around them, the church is going to be attacked. Jesus is reminding them, I am right there with you. You stand up for me and I'll be standing with you. We see that pictured in Acts chapter 7 when, G, when a Stephen, that first martyr, stood and he proclaimed the gospel and they picked up stones and began to stone Stephen to death and he saw Jesus, he said, standing at the right hand of the Father. And I believe you can go from there all the way back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And when, the, when King Nebuchadnezzar looked in, there wasn't three, but there was four, and the fourth had the appearance as of the Son of Man. And we're reminded from the Old Testament to the New Testament that any time you stand up for Jesus Christ, he will be standing with you. You can count on it. And so Jesus is standing right here in the midst of the churches, and he has some words of commendation for at least... Five of these churches, or six of the churches here. And what he points out in Ephesus, he says, I know your works. 
and, and I know your labor. The, the diligence, their action, their work, the word work meant to be busy with a calling, busy with a mission. And so he says, I commend you because you're about the Father's business. And so the best thing we can do as fathers in this world is be about our Heavenly Father's business and model his business, his work, knowing him and making him known in this world. He uses the word works, and then he uses the word labor. There's no mistake that we refer to childbirth as labor. But labor, the word labor meant something painful and intense. It's a work ethic. And fathers often teach us a work ethic. When, when I've sat in, in places where people could talk about what their dad taught them, one of the number one things that I, I see that my generation learned from our fathers is a work ethic. They didn't just get up and go to work when they felt like it. They went, whether, whether it was labor-intensive, whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day, they just got up and went to work. It was part of the generation. That was my father. That was his generation. And today we live in a world where people don't even value work anymore. They do everything they can to get out of it. And even in the church, that spills over, that temperament spills over into the church. If you don't believe me, ask our ministry placement team. People will come up with every reason in the world not to be about the Father's business. And so he is commending him. He's saying, church, there's a work ethic there. You are people of action. You're doing what you're called to do, and that's wonderful. And you're doing it when it's labor-intensive. You're doing it sometimes when it feels like it, and it's wonderful. And you're doing it sometimes when you don't feel like it, and it doesn't feel so good. You're doing what God's called you to do. You've got a great work ethic. It's interesting that this is what he says to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians 2.10, we read that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God didn't save us to seat us on the bench. He saved us to put us in the game. So he commends them for their works. We also see in the next church here, the church at Smyrna, he says in verses 8 and 9, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the first and the last. Everything starts with me and ends with me. The one who was dead and came to life. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. In, in the King James, it says, I know your works and tribulation. The word there in the Greek, it's actually just one word. It's the word affliction. And the word means stress. He says, I know the stress. I know the pressure you're under. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the labor-intensive work that we saw in Ephesus. And then in, in the church in Thyatira, in verse 18, he says, to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? The Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. That's the picture of Christ that you saw last week. It's the, the penetrating gaze of a righteous judge. And sometimes our fathers can even model that for us as they look at us and they know what's in our hearts. He says, I know your works. And then after he mentions their love, he talks about faithfulness. I know your works. I know your, your faithfulness. And so it's a sign of true gratefulness. Their works, some translations have that word faithfulness as service. It's something that would continue to grow. Look at verse 19, the end of that verse. He says, your works are greater, that your last works are greater than the first. That's what we call momentum. 
Momentum is a beautiful thing, and, and it can come and it can go, but he's saying you're, you're working together and you're serving, and, and, and you begin to do this together as teams, and, and the church is serving together. It's a wonderful picture, and all of a sudden now you have some momentum, and with momentum comes excitement. As long as someone doesn't come in and kill the momentum or throw cold water on the fires that are blazing, he's saying, man, you're working together. This is great. You're faithful, and it's getting better because there's so momentum, and it's contagious. So he's com- they're commended again for their works. And then the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3 are also commended for their works. He says, man, I, I see you at work. We need to embrace this work ethic in life, in, in, in what God calls us to do as a vocation. But we need to embrace it in the church as the body and the bride of Christ and realize that that the church is being commended here because they're rolling up their sleeves and they're going to work. Now, sometimes we have those moments where we feel like it, and sometimes we have moments where we don't feel like it when it comes to God's work, God's call in our lives, God's ministry in our lives, that place of service in the local church. Sometimes you feel like working in the nursery. Sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes you feel like teaching that class, and other times you don't feel like it. Sometimes you feel like going on a mission trip, and other times you don't feel like it. But it's work. It's labor-intensive. And there can come a joy and a passion with that. How many of you are thankful today that your father gave you chores to do? Raise your hand. Most of us over the age of 18 can raise our hands. I'm glad my dad gave me chores. I'm glad that my dad had a work ethic. I used to think that my dad decided to clear off some land in our backyard from time to time. I thought he would cut down trees, not for firewood, but just so that Toby and I could drag tree limbs. Uh, just, just, just to give us some work to do, just to load our arms with firewood and make us walk it back up toward the house. Um, I thank God for a dad with a work ethic and, and teaching me. And listen, sometimes it might have been something fun. Most of the time, work wasn't always fun. It, it was labor intensive. You, know, you, you carry that mentality, that work ethic, one day when you have to fill out that job application. Now, other than cutting the grass in the yards in the neighborhood and tearing up my dad's lawnmower in the process. Uh, you know, I remember when I turned 16 and got that job kind of outside of the neighborhood, Burger King. And I had the corduroy uniform and everything that we used to wear. And, and don't laugh, Donnie Drake wore one too. But we learned a work ethic. You get a job. You go to work. It, it, and, and I tell young ladies this all the time, but before Adam was ever given a woman to love, he was given a work to do. So make sure that guy will work. Make sure that he will get a job and that he will seek and and strive to hold down that work. But there's also work in the church. And and so just like whether it was those chores, mowing or taking out the trash or cleaning or working in a garden, you would never look at your earthly father. At least I wouldn't. Some of you may have. You would never look at your earthly father and say, I don't really feel like it. No, thank you. Because most of us had an earthly father that could change the way we felt. And usually all he had to do was grab that belt buckle and didn't have to do anything else. I I feel like it. I feel like it. I feel like working today. But sometimes we look at our heavenly father and the mission that he's called us to and we say, well, God, I don't really feel like that. God, I think I just need to take some time off. And the Lord may come right back in the middle of that time off. He was commending them because they didn't grow weary in well-doing. They stayed with the work. I'm glad we have a faith that we can feel. 
But I'm glad we've got truth when we can't always feel what is true and what is right. We've got a work to do that God has called us to. And James said, you can talk about the faith all you want, but James said, faith without works is dead. It's dead. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith, but we have a faith that works, and it works itself out, and we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He commends them for that. And I believe there was a joy and an energy that accompanied it because the momentum kicked in, especially there in Thyatira. They began to work together, and, and, and this, this, it kind of increased because it was contagious, and a joy and a passion came a lot of times after they began to work. The enemy wants to attack our spirit. And say, I don't feel like serving anywhere this year. I, there's too much work to do. There's there's too much responsibility. You may even try to get those of us called into vocational ministry. Come on, you can do something else. Something that's not so hard as trying to move the body of Christ for the glory of God. I'm just tired. God, I, I just want to spiritually sleep in. And he commended these churches for their works, and I'm glad that we have fathers who have modeled that for us. Secondly, Jesus commends not only the diligence in the work, but dedication to the Word. If we start with actions, we'll move now into beliefs. In Ephesus chapter 2, the second part, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, not only I know your works and labor, he says, you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. There was spiritual discernment around the gospel here. And then down in verse 6, he says, I know you, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Now, the, the word Nicolaitan it means people conqueror. Some believe that there was actually a man by the name of Nicholas who came in and, and he was introducing the, the, this heretical teaching that, that grace is a license. You can just live what you want to live. Do what you want to do. As long as you're saved by grace, as long as you believe right, it doesn't matter how you act. And so there was a confrontation of that. They didn't tolerate anybody who messed with the truth of the gospel. They didn't tolerate anyone who messed and distorted the truths of Scripture. In the church of Pergamum, we see in, in chapter 2 and verse 13, there's another commendation here. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding to my name and do not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. That church, there were, or in that city, there was a great throne that symbolized the presence of Zeus. And there was a lot of polytheism and all kinds of gods were being worshipped, the ancient Greek gods. There was also an emblem that's popular even in the medical field today that was a, a sign of the, the god of healing and health, Asclepius. It's that that rod and the snake that we see even on our ambulances today. And, and so there was this false worship around these many different gods. And in Jude chapter 3, before we get to this book of Revelation, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, admonishes the church to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So don't tolerate this always lead to the same God. Don't tolerate the polytheism of the day. We might say in the 21st century, don't put up with pluralism that says, hey, your way is fine with you, my way is fine with me, all ways ultimately lead to the same way. 
And they defended the truth. They were dedicated to the Word of God. Their beliefs were foundational. In Philadelphia, in, in chapter 3, in verse 8, it says, I know your works because you have limited strength. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Then he refers to, in verse 9, this Jewish sect. And he says, they're not true Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan because they're trying to get you to believe something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you haven't caved. You've been faithful to the word of God. Joshua stood on the laws of God in the Old Testament. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think that's a spirit that needs to be in our homes. It's a conviction. It's a value that needs to be in our churches. That if it's not according to this book, then it's of no eternal significance. And if it goes against the principles and precepts of Scripture, we will not stand for it in our homes or in our church. Years ago, at uh, Yellowstone National Park, there was a, a park ranger leading a group of tourists on a, a guided tour. And because his radio kept going off with different people, different rangers talking about different things that were taking place around the park, and he was wanting to tell this group of hikers about all of the flowers in the area and, and, and different things that he was seeing. And so he, he turned his radio down so low that he couldn't hear it. And finally, as they made their way toward a certain peak on this hike, this trail, suddenly comes running up to them another ranger and he's out of breath and he's trying to move them to a safe place as quickly as he possibly can and he said one of our rangers at a fire station has seen a grizzly bear stalking this crowd and we're trying to get you to a safe place it could have cost them their lives he had turned his radio down to where he couldn't hear it so he could do a little talking and i'm reminded of the fact that god wants us to have an ear toward heaven constantly these churches are being told, if you have an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. When a dad has his face in the Word of God, he's got an ear toward heaven. And he can hear the warnings. Don't go there. The church and the pastor and the leadership of a church that have their face in the Word of God will always have an ear toward heaven. And we will hear the warnings of God. We will be dedicated to the Word of God. And we will protect and guard the right beliefs that will keep the people of God out of trouble. It's a dad and a church and a leader who always says, what does the Bible say about that? When there's controversy, when there's conflicts, when there's arguments, that, that we quickly say, well, what does the Bible say about that? And we have such a conviction that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God that we can say, if the Bible says that, we rest our case. Areas of honesty and modesty and relationships and even what worldview we would embrace. What does the Bible say about that? See, the devil, devil will try to question our beliefs. The synagogue of Satan, the, the crowd that will come and say, did God really say, just as Genesis chapter 3 points out. See, the Bible becomes our guide for life. But the Bible is a lot like a telescope. You know, a telescope can be a fascinating thing to look at. And there are different size and different powers of telescope. and They can be a, a beautiful thing to look at. But you're kind of missing the point if you just look at it and don't look through it and see what it reveals in this great universe. And, and a lot of us have Bibles in our homes, maybe today in our laps, maybe in our trucks, 
A lot of us have Bibles that we can point to and we could look at, but unless we take time to look into it, intently into it, and say, God, what are the principles and precepts that you want me to discover and learn? It, it becomes a window on heaven for us. And so when we look into intently into the perfect law of liberty, it sets us free in this life. And you want the next generation, if as a church we want to bring up a generation that know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, that have a bigger picture of this world and what God is doing than what they're going to learn at school, then we need to be people of the book. We need to stay in the Word of God. And as dads on this Father's Day, I would admonish you to take the leadership in that role and keep the Word of God before your kids and keep your kids before this great window called the Word of God. Jesus commends the diligence in their works. He commends the dedication to the very Word of God. And finally, Jesus commends a determination in their walk. Jesus commends a certain determination in their walk. This will be the character. You've got the ABCs right there of this journey, of these commendations, actions, beliefs, character. Make for a great father, a man of action, great beliefs, great character. Going back to the church of Ephesus, he commends their character. He, he, in verse 3, he talks about their patience and their endurance. That word for endurance there has to do with remaining under, staying with it, not throwing in the towel. In their faith and in their walk with God, they were walking with Jesus Christ, and no matter what came at them, they would endure. They would stand under that with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Dad, sometimes when it comes to what God has called us to, and we feel like throwing in the towel, let's be reminded that this is part of the fruit of the Spirit, that patience, that endurance, that we've got such a close walk with Jesus. Ephesians 5.18, this church at Ephesus had already received a letter from Paul that said, don't be drunk with wine, but be ye being filled. Keep on being filled with the Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit, including patience and the ability to stand under it, will overflow in your life. The church at Thyatira, in, in, in chapter 2 and verse 19, he mentions faithfulness and he mentions endurance again. Fruit of the Spirit-filled life, a walk with God. The church at Sardis in chapter 3 and verse 4, we see some interesting words because this comes in this letter after the confrontation that we'll see next week. He says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. He says, there's a few people there. Listen, a lot of you have messed up and we'll deal with that controversy later next week. But he says... There are some, though, man, they're walking with me, and, and when they step into eternity, they're just going to keep on walking with me in robes of white. It's a journey they began in this side of heaven that will continue on into glory. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, as a prisoner of the Lord, the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, I beg you, I urge you, walk worthy of the calling you have received. Walk with God. Walk with God. He will later in, in Ephesians say, walk in the truth, walk in the light, and then be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, in his prayer for the church, I pray that you will walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him in every way. The Christian life is a journey. It's a walk. And those who are walking with God receive this commendation because of the determination to say, whatever the world does, I'm going to walk with God. 
whatever this world throws at me, no matter how persecuted we become as Christians, I'm going to walk with Jesus Christ. And that's the only way I'll be able to stand under the pressures of this world. You know, a child can be okay in the dark if dad's with them. Remember those days when you were afraid of the dark? When you might have to walk outside in the dark or walk through a dark place? You ever remember if dad took you by the hand, everything was a-okay? We can walk in the dark if our father is with us. The world in which we live is going to become what Timothy says, perilous times in these last days. The world is going to become a more and more dark place to live because of the sin that abounds. But when we walk hand in hand with the Father, we have nothing to fear. Let's walk with God. Dad, you may feel like, well, I don't have much to leave the next generation. I don't have much to leave my kids when I'm gone from this place. Proverbs 22 and verse 1 says, a good name is more valuable than great riches. So though we may be in poverty in this life, we can leave a great name of having walked with God. I would want my children to say of me not that he was a great pastor, he was a great preacher, or that his jokes were funny. (laughs) I would want them to say, my dad walked with God. What he preached on Sunday is what he lived Monday through Saturday. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, you know, people may say you're poor, but you're rich. Why? Because of this walk with God. To walk with God in these last days. We have to learn from those who walked with God in these days. We have to learn from those who walked with God from the very beginning. Think about this. In Genesis, all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6, we read that the the world was like it's going to be, as Jesus said, when when he comes again. In Genesis chapter 6, the world was so full of sin and debauchery and and, it even grieved the heart of God that he had made man. The, the, The world was so messed up. But in the midst of that messed up world, we see this beautiful story. And it says Noah was a righteous man and he did what? He walked with God. And so no matter how messed up you may think the world is, you can be salt, you can be light. Light shines brighter in the darkness anyway. And you can be light in this world by just simply being men who walk with God, by being families who walk with God, by being a church who has a genuine walk with God. Noah was a righteous man, he walked with God. Maybe he learned from a great-grandfather in chapter 5, where it says Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for the Lord took him. Now, that's kind of a crazy passage. We only know of two people in Scripture that went to heaven without ever having to die. One was Elijah, who went out in chariots of fire. Now, that's got to be a fun way to go, and maybe that compares to the rapture, you know. Well, Elijah was taken up in chariots of fire. Man, awesome. Enoch, all we're told is that he was out for a walk with God. I love the way that Dr. Jerry Vines puts this. He says, that Enoch was out walking and talking with God as was his pattern, and God said to Enoch one day, you know, son, we're closer to my house than we are to yours. Why don't you just come on home and spend the night with me? And Enoch walked right into heaven. When you're walking with God, I I believe that 
We are living in the last days. I know for sure that we're one day closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. But I don't have to fear what's going to happen to me because I'm walking with God, and even if I lose my life this side of heaven. I heard at a breakfast Tuesday morning, Finney Matthews, who's preached in this pulpit a couple of times, whom I've been to India with, and he says, I've got that... The, the, the spirit of Esther when it comes to the work we're doing in India. He says, if I die, I die. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. So when we live with that mentality, and we're found faithful, and we're simply saying, you know what? I'm going to be found doing the works of God. I'm going to be dedicated to the Word of God, and I'm going to be walking with God. Then when Jesus comes back, or I get sent home any other way, I'm just going to continue to walk with Him. Continue the journey I started by walking into glory with my Savior. Would you bow your heads with me?